Welcome to the Future Church Podcast with Anthony Delaney. If this podcast helps you, forward it to others, give us a review and subscribe today. For additional thoughts and resources, visit anthonydelaney.com. Welcome everybody to the Future Church Podcast with me, Anthony Delaney. Um, encourage you while I'm talking to subscribe, share, tell all your friends about it and uh encourage other people to be able to listen to it. I'm so excited that today we have as a special guest on the podcast, uh, a friend, Tim Nelson. Uh, I first met Tim, actually, I can remember when it was. It was um, at uh, it was at the church that he used to uh, work for over in Bradford. When I first came to Manchester, when I came back to Manchester, I came back 13 years ago, probably there for about a year afterwards, I wanted to look at churches that were doing great things. And so I went over to Abundant Life and the people there were really helpful, just gave me lots of time. I spent a couple of days picking lots of brains. And one of the people that I remember meeting in the Starbucks over there was Tim. And uh, he was generous with his time to help me look at the thing that he was then doing. So uh, we've known each other since then. But now uh, Tim Nelson is the CEO of an amazing charity called Hope for Justice, which I know many of you will have heard of. It's a, it's a global nonprofit which aims to end human trafficking and modern slavery. And he co-founded it. So welcome, Tim. Great to have you on the Future Church podcast. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I feel a real privilege to be with you. Thanks. So, I mean, that's not um, a Bradford accent. Tell us about your kind of family background and, um, yeah, just something about your kind of story. Yeah, no, that's fine. I, I grew up in, as you probably tell, in Northern Ireland. Um, I've been in England now for the last 25 years, but um, I, I grew up, uh, my formative years were in South Down and then also I uh, went to school in Belfast. Um, and I think I grew up in, in quite a progressive family in terms of our, our thinking and background, uh, a Christian family, uh, born in an, uh, and brought up in an Anglican church context. But um, alongside that, my, my dad ran his own painting and decorating company, um, painting schools and hospitals. Uh, and my mum was at the time principal private secretary to the head of the Northern Irish office. Uh, so we were obviously a little bit more active in understanding of the political ramifications of what were going on uh, whilst I was growing up in the 70s and 80s. And, and that had a profound impact upon all of our family. Um, and we were brought up with a view to, you won't stay in Northern Ireland, you'll you'll go out and see the world. So, I, you know, my, my family were, were incredibly generous in, in allowing me to do that and moving over to England. But even just when I was 15, my mum and dad let me go traveling to Australia uh, for months on end on my own um, to Malaysia and then Australia. And then the following year, uh, went with a group to uh, Venezuela, Guyana and Brazil for three and a half months. So really got a, a global view of the world and and really helped shape my thinking. Wow. That, I've got this a book in front of me, I've just been reading, called Stolen Focus by uh, Johan Hari. And uh, he actually has a chapter in there, interestingly enough, about how um, parenting has changed over the years. And he describes that, you know, in the past, you know, well, I can certainly remember, you know, being allowed to, I mean, I, I, I will, uh, my parents didn't let me go to Australia, but they did let me, you know, go out after school and they never really knew where I was until somebody shouted me it was time for tea and he came in and ate it, then he went out again and 
And like nowadays, um, you know, if children are let to walk to the shops on their own, chances are the uh, they'll they'll be reported to the social services for child abandonment. But you know, actually, I mean, let's start there. You know, uh, do you think that that kind of um, you know a, a permission uh, to be able to think in those ways and act in those ways, as you said, as as um, you know, how does that shape you now in terms of your thinking, your ability to have maybe changed from, I know that, you know, you've gone into different jobs and different roles, for instance, was that something that, uh, it just sounds like an unusual way of thinking that you were, you were thought, you were brought into from an early age? Yeah, I think, I think my parents knew I was, I was always quite hyperactive in, uh, as a child. Um, so my mum and dad knew I could survive on four to five hours sleep, even from being a two and three year old. Um, so they were quite willing to put me to school a year early. So it, it meant I was the youngest in my year. And, and there's certain, um, aspects of that that mean that you're not the overachiever in sport it means that you've got a certain battling because you're always the smallest or the 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 least in in the year and i know that 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 itself also has an impact on individuals as they grow i think i didn't fully mature until in height and and size until i was in my late teens and as a result of that there is a sense that trying to work out you know where your place is in the world is is different and um i d- i think my parents very much were probably naive to what the world, uh, the dangers that the world has. There's a, a singer who I like, um, Ben Howard, and he's got a song called Depth Over Distance. And it, within the song, he talks about we all live within the confines of fear. And I think for for society, quite often we don't think a lot about where fear is, but we 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 try to back off from anything that would be at all uh, a problem or an issue for us. And I, I think for me, I'm I'm because we grew i grew up in a place where you know my mom and dad plant, plant, uh, built our house that we we grew up in and when they were building the house someone planted a car bomb outside the house and luckily it didn't go off but my mom had to check her car every day for would there be a controlled explosion need to be carried out on a device under her car or would she be unlucky that someone would target her for the job and role she had but it starts to change what you think about fear and i think fear has an ability to get on you and it it changes where your confidence lies. So I think I've always grown up with probably very little fear. Um, I, I'm not fearful of a lot of things happening, but I, I think from that perspective, going out and seeing the world, it starts to change how you think about fear. And and also you learn a lot about yourself when you spend any length of time on your own, you get to know the really great things about your character and then you get to know those things that you need to be developing or working on. Um, but I think it, it really helped me understand you know, the need for people, the need for community, the need for great close relationships, not just, you know, everybody being your friend on Facebook, but actually having people that know you and know how you operate. And, you know, nothing's a surprise to you because they know you well. Mm. Well, my my father was from um, just outside Belfast, actually. He left school at 16 and basically joined the Merchant Navy. Nobody even knew where he'd gone until he got sent a postcard from South Africa to his parents saying, I'm alive. <laughs> wow. so, so I kind of, you know, have a, you know, you, you reminded me a little bit of that kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, but my, he certainly had a wealth of experience from his travels during those times. And, uh, you know, I think it is great. Whereas personally for me, 
you know, I, I was brought up here in Manchester, didn't really travel, didn't know anywhere. You know, you can end up with quite a small world. It was only really when I got into ministry that I started to, oh, some years later, start to travel around and, and see the world in all its beauty. But also, we obviously, we get to see the world in, in many of its, you know, the pains of, of the fact that this is a broken world. And obviously, that's something that, you, that um, you've, you know, you seek to address I know that um, Hope for Justice, um, you know, has a, you know, a, a, at its heart, a Christian ethos in, in uh, to want to see people set free. So where did that come from in you, do you think? Where did that, and uh, what's the kind of story? You know, I know that you were, I think, NatWest's youngest bank manager when you were in your 20s. And, you know, it's quite a move. When I'm at the barbers, they always say, oh, you're working today, and you say, I'm a church leader, and then look at you funny, and usually for me, they say, oh, we don't like a church leader, and oh, what, have you, what happened, and you tell the story, and they say, I was a policeman, and they go, oh, that's a big change. But for you, you know, you've gone, I mean, these are the ones I know about, um, from working for NatWest to working for a church, to then, you know, as they now lead in this organisation, what's the what's the story there, Tim? Yeah, I think it's interesting because my ultimate aim of going to university and getting a degree specialising in technology was to be a stockbroker. That's what I, the rest of my family had three siblings and they all ended up studying law. They all ended up marrying lawyers. They all ended up moving to London. I was going to be a stockbroker and either go to London or go to Manhattan. And when I got offered the jobs, I'd got involved in, in a church in Bradford where I'd gone to university and, and loved the community, loved the people. We were helping a lot of people and I was heading up the students group. We were reaching out and making an impact in, in people who, like we had, we had some students come in from China who had never even heard of who God is let alone a concept of of the cross no no concept of even god so we were seeing people set free and and saved on a regular basis um and i think that part of me saw a need to help people and decided to turn down the jobs in london and, and new york to stay where i was and i'd worked part time for uh, a bank whilst i was at university and knew there was an opening for an advisor's role um, applied uh, and because of my background knowledge they offered to give me a manager's role before any graduate training scheme or anything like that so went into that and with a view to this is a great job but at least I can learn quite a bit and build relationally and I just loved it I got to meet loads of customers got to meet loads of people and understand their businesses build relationally and during that time the church had grown significantly and They'd been interested in some of the business aspects uh, and asked me to get involved. And I, again, I was so bought in to what was going on. I, I thought, well, yeah, I was giving up every evening and weekend to try and make it happen um, and got involved. And, and I've been there ever since. Yeah. So I think from for me, when I was then working for the church, one of my um, customers invited me to sit as an advisor for an offshore investment trust they were setting up in America had a night spare in Los Angeles on that two week trip. And a friend of mine told me about, um, it brought a friend with him who told me about the issues of um, human trafficking, modern day slavery. He was on the phone to a lady called Condoleezza Rice who was working for the Bush administration. And he was arguing about India on the human trafficking register. This is 2007 and he had seen kids in cages in Mumbai being shipped all over India. And his challenge to me was, you call yourself a Christian. What are you doing on this? They, they, there are going to be people in your city where you're sleeping tonight and they're calling out to a God to help set them free. And God's waiting for you to move. And I came back to the UK and I couldn't shake it. 
I spoke to pretty much everybody I knew. And one of my really good friends um, was a car dealer and he'd heard of um, four individuals in Manchester that were looking to, to consider putting on an event and said to me, look, you've done events with church. You've got a good background in operations. Maybe you could help in this way. And we both went over and I got caught up in the vision uh, that was painted for what we could do by putting on a first event. Uh, there were 10 of us that got together to put on the first event. I got to name the charity at the beginning uh, and the first event we we called The Stand. Um, we launched it in the December um, and we called it Hope for Justice because it was linking in with what Andy Hawthorne was doing around Hope 08 and, and across the church community. So we wanted to be hope for something. So hope for justice and the event we called The Stand because we wanted to see people take a stand about this issue. So um it was a really fortuitous because then the song The Stand came out in the March just after that and we were able to capitalise on that and we pulled in favours from Delirious and Tim Hughes and other amazing people who would come and, and be a part of that first event that we did and that was the springboard to everything that we're doing now. Mm, brilliant. So you just described there, you know, you said you talked about something that grabbed you, you then talked about, you described it an, an issue but now on your website, et cetera, I noticed that Hope for Justice describes itself as a movement. And it's been said, and I do believe that the future of the church is movements rather than denominations and so on. It's about networking around common causes, et cetera. So, um, how, you know, the church started as a movement of people and uh, and is still best, I believe, when it is. So, um, you know, lessons for us, lessons for me as a church leader, how do you build a movement? Well, I, I think we're on that journey, um, so I don't want it to make it look like we are better than we actually are um, as an organisation. There needs to be structure and there needs to be kind of order in what we do. You know, we have to pay people. We have to make sure that we've got plans that are robust, that we can work in partnership and collaboration. But I think the best part of a movement is that it's not structured. And I, I believe there's a, a part where it allows everyone to bring themselves to to play a part and it might be more messy it might be harder to control you know if you're a control freak you hate movements because you'd rather have everything ordered and structured and and potentially you pull the life out of something when you try to over organize it and i think with a movement you basically come to whosoever and say there's a part you can play I think sometimes, you know, if I link it into the church, I, I think sometimes from a church perspective, there isn't the freedom for individuals to bring themselves. And I think where we were, um, it used to be that you had a church leader who said, this is my vision. I want everyone to build my vision of what I want to do in the local community. But I think with where education's up to, with where society and culture's up to, now there's a sense that the individual themselves is coming with a plan are coming with an idea, are coming with a, a part to play. And it's more important for the church leader to steward that plan and enable that plan to come to fruition, to water it, to help nurture it, to help de develop it, to disciple that individual, to help them get out everything that's in them. And it's exactly the same at Hope for Justice. We want to try and have people come to us who have great ideas, uh, great opportunities to enable things to happen. And we want to be stewards or custodians of how we can help that move. So I think for me, the, the ability for us to be flexible, for us to be open, 
transparent, to be direct in sometimes in the communication. Sometimes people want to do things that are crazy and put people in massive risk that we don't want them to go into. But then there are those people who come with ideas and they're not looking for someone to to take the glory. They're not looking for someone to over manage it. They're just looking for the opportunity to, to dream an impossible dream. And hopefully at Hope for Justice, we've seen people like that come alive. You know, I, I think of a there was a lady in, in the US, uh, Lindsay Yoda, at the age of 14, had the idea to walk 300 miles to our offices from where she was to tell people about it, raised, I think, close to $80,000 at the age of 14. Wow. Now, you know, if you're, if you're, uh, if you're structured, you're never going to allow that to happen. 14-year-old, what? No, like that. Maybe you could do something in your school. Maybe you could do something and shrink. Or oh, oh, wait a year. Wait, wait a year. We'll send you to Australia. <laughs> Absolutely, but I, I, I just genuinely think if we can go, Lindsay, whatever you want to do, if if we can get your family on board, we're there to help support you and and see it grow. And I think that's where we've seen hope for justice grow significantly where you know it's the coming together of many organizations now we've had seven organizations merge into hope for justice over the years and it's the beauty of that coming together because it's all very different but every organization that has come in has helped shape our culture so that you know we benefit from cultures coming in a bit like Old Testament examples of, of the tribes coming together when they come together there's a distinction but there's also a benefit that brings the whole um, group together yeah wow so much we can dig into there i'm thinking from a church perspective um you know just for fellow church listeners church leaders who are listening to this and this idea of the shift as you've described it from the church leader having to have all the answers and being the visionary that then you've got i mean that's exhausting actually to try and bring the vision to everybody and and um, that often leads. Um, I remember when I first started out in church leadership, reading a book, um, David Watson, an great Anglican, who wrote the book "I Believe in the Church," who said the vicar is very often the uh, the cork in the bottle that stops everything. Everything has to go through that person. And actually, he was saying even then, and this was, I mean, it was an old book then uh, in the eighties. You know, he was saying we, we that's got to stop. I think perhaps through COVID it's been shown that actually that doesn't work anyway. And, you know, we're in a whole different um, ball game as church leaders. Um, but I suppose, you know, something we do, a phrase I've used over the years is that we kind of, we don't want to, um, you know, we don't have to own everything. We, we want to get behind people. We don't have to be in front of everything that they're doing in order to be able to work with them. So, you know, what are the ways, I suppose, effectively that you found that help to engage people around, you know, what are the ways somebody listening to this, uh, you know, could get involved with help for justice? And I, I mean ways, what, you know, what, what's, what, is, what could partnership look like? This isn't even so much as a plug. This is to give us ideas as, as leaders that there's more, you know, if all you want to do is get people on the coffee rotor, then that's the extent of your vision. Um, but the, you're only going to get some people who really want to do coffee that will be a part of that. Um, so as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, what are the other ways we can engage? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that the number one thing that a church leader needs to do is to wake the sleeping giant that is the church. Because I think there's so much of what the church is that just sits idle 
because maybe you can't play an instrument or maybe you're not on the preaching rota or maybe you don't have the time that you can commit to being at something on a regular basis. And the more people I meet on an international basis, I realize these that there's commonalities that run across this where you have a small group of people who are making church happen absolutely burned out trying to facilitate everything happening to a standard some churches have a bigger core group and the the standard can be higher some people have a specialty because someone joins their church and they have you know they're super gifted but i think from for me i look at it and i go the the first stage that a, a church needs to look at is this issue of modern day slavery is affecting businesses and is affecting supply chains so if you if you start to think about who makes the commodities that the church is using the coffee that you sell, the t-shirts that you buy, you know, last minute for a big event that's coming up, or even just down to the the the, the offering receptacles or bins or buckets or whatever you might use. People aren't asking even the questions about the conditions that the individuals were, were taken care of. But there are people within your church context, or if you're a church leader within your co- church context, that actually in their church. There are people who are in significant positions of authority within businesses that can ask the right questions. And maybe just maybe one of them themselves could make a massive impact in a a corporation or a business that they're involved in. I went to speak at a church not that long ago and at the on the Monday afterwards, this person didn't come and see me on the stand or at the back of the church. They just sent an email after the following day and just said, Maybe I could do something. And this chap's a finance director on a FTSE 100 company. So one of the top 100 companies in the UK. And he just realized maybe there's a part I can actually do here. And that's led to me having conversations, not just here in the UK, but internationally with their operations to see what we can do to try and help remove slavery from their supply chains. Mm -hmm. And I think it's a real... It's a current issue. We're starting to see legislation be enacted in different countries. But why wouldn't the church be at the forefront of something which is about protecting people's lives? So the first part I would say is mobilize the church, make them aware of aspects where they can bring what are God-given principles of freedom to the workplace that they're involved in because suddenly then the church becomes relevant to them Mm. because people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And in this scenario, if you were able to bring in a, a, a something to your church context that actually is relevant to people's workplaces, that is a pain point that might be on a risk register that their company is involved in, I think it, it starts to change things. The second area I would talk about is, is around what people are doing locally within the community that, that church folk might be involved in because this issue, even around sexual exploitation, is so widespread. Uh, online sexual exploitation, somewhere in the region of 2,000 transactions a minute now happening for online sexual exploitation. This issue is 40.3 million people expected to be in some form of human trafficking or modern day slavery globally. We realize it's in local communities across the board. So what is your church doing in that local community as a response to this? It could be prayer. It could be you connect in with a local authority or a, a, a police force or you're connecting into uh, an NGO, someone who's working where you're at to be able to provide a different impact and source to it. Because Hope for Justice is one organization, but we stand shoulder to shoulder. Other organizations working in this field are not our competition. They're our team. And we want to try and facilitate a movement. And quite often that principle, I think, is lost in church as well, where I think churches almost compete against each other to attract people to come. Whereas actually, if you start to think we're all one team, we're all on the same team trying to put a ball in the back of the net together, um, that fundamentally 
if if I can help facilitate something happening in another community to try and see this shift, then that movement will will grow and it will become a tsunami of freedom that will go all across the world. Come on. Yeah. So I mean, it's very inspirational, um, and and you know, love that obviously. And uh, I've got to say, from my time in the police, I don't think when I was a police officer that. Uh, human slavery was ever really spoken about. I don't think it was, it came on the radar. It's something that, I mean, people like yourself and, uh, you know, I've got, you know, friends who've been involved with this sort of fight in different ways, you know, uh, over the years, like Sarah de Caballo in a previous church who's, um, you know, there's, there's, there's other people who we're grateful to for kind of um, bringing these uh, terrible things to the fore, into the into our um, you know for us to know about them. But hope for justice's mission sounds simple: it's to end slavery and change lives. And you know, I, I imagine, however, it's incredibly complex and something uh, you know for many people it will sound an overwhelming problem or set of problems. So obviously, as a church leader, I see a lot of evidence of change lives. I'm all up for changing lives. Um, but looking at that statement, end slavery. Um, you know, you just quoted some figures there about the scale of this globally, 100,000 apparently in the UK alone. Maybe that's the figure I've seen living in slavery. So my question is, is it actually achievable? And how do you go about achieving such a grand vision or a, a mission? Yeah, it is on purpose intentional that it is a big, big vision that we, we've we gone for. You know, we've we've not tried to limit the place or the the where we're we're trying to end this because we realize that modern slavery human trafficking exists across borders and this issue is now the second highest grossing um, um industry for serious and organized crime somewhere in the region of 150 billion dollars a year are being generated through this across uh, what is forced labor and uh, forced marriage sexual um, abuse and also connected directly into um, areas where we see domestic slavery and organ harvesting. Those those areas themselves are, are significant, and each one is significant. But if I pick a, if I pick one of them, just to give you an example, they've now determined that in countries that have an organ donation scheme organ harvesting doesn't happen. So that's where individuals are trafficked to take organs out of them. So I would advocate for organ donation schemes in every single country that we possibly could have because we can end that aspect of the heinous crime of modern day slavery. Mm. But I, I look at it and go, every single one of those that I've mentioned is like a domino. In every single community, we can have a robust response to this. Now, there's there are issues that have to go alongside this, and you can't talk about the issue if you don't talk about things like the demand for those people to use prostitutes. So at the moment in the UK and the US, it's somewhat similar. One in 10 men will use a prostitute at some form of time in their life. But there aren't the number of women who want to go into being prostitutes to service those men that have that desire. So therefore, people are groomed to go into that industry. If we could tackle the issue of why men go and use prostitutes, then it will see a reduction in demand. And therefore, it will see a reduction in the amount of women who are taken to be used in sexual exploitation. Mm. But I believe that although it's a massive, massive uh, issue, that actually we're now living in a day and an age where there is massive possibilities of change. So for instance, within labor trafficking, the laws are starting to change significantly. 
Germany, just before Christmas, passed new legislation that will carry with it a 2% global fine for any company that's proved to be complicit within modern-day slavery. That's huge. So as a result of it, German companies are now starting to change what they're doing. We have things called withhold release orders in America for particular locations. And instead of it being innocent until proven guilty, they assume that there is modern slavery human trafficking in it. And the companies themselves have to prove now that the companies they're using do not have slavery within it. We're changing because society is changing. It's not just good enough to say, I know the price and I know the quality of a garment. People are interested to make sure that people haven't been abused in that process. So it could be the cobalt that's in your mobile phone that primarily is brought from the Democratic Republic of Congo, made from exploited labor. It could be you want solar panels on your home and the polysilicate, the majority of polysilicate is coming out of Xinjiang, made by the Uyghur population, which is enslaved. It could be um, you want to get that new um, uh, you might think about it as a, a new granite work surface or fire fire surround. Well, actually, it's primarily coming out of quarries where there are, we went to one quarry in India where there are 30,000 families that are debt bonded to that quarry. Mm -hmm. So when you start to know, it's almost like you're through the looking glass and you can start to make different decisions. But I think I think the the, the massive goal to go for it, you know, it might be that I don't achieve this in my lifetime. I pray that we would see it happen, but I think we need to come at it with almost like a, you know, in 1 Samuel, um, Jonathan and his armor bearer come after the Philistines and there's a, there's one sword between the two of them mm. and there's a, perhaps God will show up scenario. I think there needs to be almost from a, a Christian perspective, there's something about the being a man and a Christian man that we need to not be weak, weak or wimpy or, or, or shrink back, but we need to step up and believe that some of these big abuses can be tackled head on and that we can see an answer to it. So it is incredibly complicated. It's not as simple as just going in and knocking the doors down of brothels and trying to drag people out. Hmm. People build um, connections with their traffickers and things like Stockholm syndrome occur. So we have to build bridges of trust. We have to be able to create a thought through professional approach that works in collaboration with law enforcement agencies. We need to make sure that it's not a spasm of passion, but long obedience in the same direction to enable people to be set free. But we know that it works and we know that with a thought through approach, it can work. But the, the current statistics just on last year, there were just over 118,000 individuals who were found and set free last year out of 40.3 million. It's a drop in the ocean. Mm. And we know that a lot more needs to happen to enable us to change this. And certainly with issues around Ukraine and others popping up, we know that the, the, the issue's not going away. It's actually amplifying, but we need to do more. Launch is back in person this year, just outside of Manchester, taking place on the 3rd and 4th of October. We're really excited to welcome you back for what is sure to be a brilliant two days, looking at how the post-pandemic church can be rebuilt, revived, and reproduced. As a Future Church podcast listener, you can get an additional 10% off your ticket when you use the promo code FUTUREChurch, all one word. Visit launchcatalyst.org today and use promo code FUTUREChurch at checkout to get your discount. So I'll take a moment and let those figures sink in because uh, each one of those is, is individuals, is families, is communities that, um, you know, I, I've seen 
I saw in Haiti, you know, kids with a little hammer and chisel chipping away in the in the you know um, in quarries, and uh, it is you know you it's unforgettable. Um, it should be unforgettable. And then to make the link, um, I remember you came and spoke actually at our men's breakfast recently at Ivy and. Um, I'm looking forward to you talking about men there, Christian men. Uh, obviously, um, you know, Christian men and women are, pa- are passionate for this. But, you know, you spoke to some of the guys in our church. And um, one of the things that you actually mentioned there was about uh, Micah and not the prophet, but the 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 thing that's made for profit in some ways in uh, that is in, for instance, on having your car looking all, um, you know, lustry and gleamy and also that we put on uh, in women's makeup or in in makeup. And, you know, you've talked about how that is uh, produced. And then actually two weeks later, I think it was just, it was around Christmas time. We were looking to buy a present for somebody and my wife went to Boots and was going to go and get some makeup. And I said, Oh, let's check. Because of that, because I didn't know, I didn't know about it. Maybe you can say something about that. But I think this is the way. So we looked around. We said we've got to find some that hasn't actually got this stuff in it. And it turned out we couldn't really find anything that didn't have this in it. And and so we ended up saying, all right, well, we're not going to buy the makeup for that person. Then we'll have to go and buy a different present for them. Um, but you know, maybe. Uh, so what I'm talking about there, and what you just referenced, is a great book. I love to reference books on the podcast. I've mentioned one already, um, which I highly recommend: "Stolen Focus" by Johan Hari. Um, but also, um, I've just finished reading uh, Dan Heath's um, book uh, called "Upstream." So, famously, um, it was uh, one of the people who's been quoted as saying it recently died. The Archbishop Desmond Tutu used the illustration about if you see children, you see a child drowning, you jump in and pull that child out. And then you see another child drowning, pull that child out. And, and then after a while, you start to think, oh, let's go upstream and see who's throwing these kids in the water and do something about that. And we've got to look for more upstream solutions rather than just dealing with a problem. So again, so we can be prayerful, so we can be informed. What kind of thing do you think, um, we, you know, what are upstream solutions to some of these problems? Yeah, I mean, when we when we consider the issue of, of labour trafficking, um, it's widespread. So I don't want to leave anyone with the impression that, you know, I'm good, everything's going to be great in, in the products I buy. We find on average between 70 to 80 percent of all companies have some form of modern day slavery, human trafficking within their supply chain. That's 70 to 80 percent. So if, if if you look at the scale that this is for even supermarkets, we you know, we work with supermarkets on a regular basis, but they may have 70,000 first tier suppliers and a small number of people who are responsible for ethical sourcing. And you, you look at products like you, you mentioned mica, which is used in the shimmer effect for makeup. But there are products like uh, palm oil, which is used across so many different products. And it's made primarily by slave labor. And I think it causes you to ask different questions of the companies that you're buying from. Because if companies know, like you've just described, it makes a difference whether I buy this or I don't buy this. Then they start to make different decisions. If they start to make different decisions, then they're going to be for the benefit of individuals. And if they think they can sell more of something because people think differently, it changes people's perspective. And that's where I think people have power within how they communicate. You know, if you're thinking about making a big purchase, you know, it might be a car, it might be you might be going in and buying something of a significant value. I would always ask the question, 
And I wouldn't, I wouldn't want anyone to feel condemned in terms of the, the products that they're buying um, because it's so widespread, but to use their voice to start asking different questions. I think if you ask a different question, it then prompts people to believe that this is an important part of what needs to be changed. Mm. And labor trafficking, as I say, is something that um, the sustainable development goals by the UN uh, is that by 2030, we will see an end to labor trafficking. Uh, you know, it, it, that's an audacious goal to believe by 2030 we could do, do that. But we're starting to see with things like blockchain-based solutions, actually each step along the process starts to outline which companies have been involved. We're starting to see big players coming into this marketplace to look at it and go, actually, it really matters because most investment companies have um, what are called ESG boards. That's environmental, social, and governmental boards. So if they think that an investment that they've made is incorrect, they'll pull that investment, even if it costs them financially, because they don't want to be associated with anything that's being done wrong. And I think that's what we as, as Christians, what we as individuals can do. We can start to ask the right questions. And if we find that someone isn't giving us the right answers or giving us the runaround, don't buy from them. There will be someone else who will come forward with a different idea that isn't having someone exploited. So I, I think a key part for where we see is things like the electrification of vehicles. So just for the UK and Europe, the need for an increase in cobalt production in the DRC for us to move to fully electrical vehicles, it will need a 30 times production of cobalt. At the moment, it's mined primarily by exploited men and children. That is going to lead to a 30 times production. So if I was going to buy an electric vehicle, I'd want to be asking the question of where did the cobalt come from that this is going to be used in the battery of my electric vehicle? It will make a difference. People will register the, the impact that it, people's buying power has because a vehicle is a big purchase. And anytime you're doing a big purchase, you're able to influence even more so than you would do on an average everyday purchase itself. But I'd encourage everybody to ask questions. And also, wherever you're at politically, wherever your local member parliament might be or your congressman or whatever world that you're in where you've got a political leader, why don't you send a letter to them? and ask them about what they're doing to try and make a difference. We've been working on legislation both here in the UK and also in the US. We recently worked with uh, Senator Chris Smith on the update of the Frederick Douglass bill around the TVPA regulations, which require individual companies to think differently around supply chains and, and the, the nature of training that needs to be carried out across businesses itself. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. I know you were, you've been recently um, on TV over here with um, regard to, um, you know, issues around immigration. And uh, I mean, again, you're not wanting to be necessarily political here, but um, there's obviously been uh, people disappointed, shall we say, <laughs> with the government's response to um immigration with regard to bringing people across from Ukraine and specifically obviously we've had uh, you know, the refugee problem has been you know ongoing and we've had a number of refugee crises one after the other after another and uh, Ukraine being you know has just added on four million um to the the numbers that we're dealing with so you know to some extent uh while it's easy to take pot shots at the same time how do we you know in, target hardened so that we don't end up uh, making the problem worse with regard to uh, trafficking by you know what, what what any thoughts around that issue yeah certainly i think for me um government's in a difficult place 
wherever you're at across the world. And I think the Bible is very clear that we need to pray for our leaders. I don't think we do that enough uh, across the church globally because the amount of pressure that individual political leaders are in to come up with answers, to, to deal with you know, crisis after crisis or issue after issue. So I would say, let's start with prayer and, and try and undergird everything that we're doing in prayer. Uh, last week, I was out in Vienna in Austria and met with um, the OSCE, which is the Organization for Security and Cooperation Across Europe. And there are 57 organization, individual countries that are part of that organization itself. And we got to meet and chat with all the representatives. And I had a moment to, to speak with a special representative from Ukraine. And this is a lady who reports directly into President Zelensky on issues around trafficking. And for three days, we talked about solutions that governments can bring uh, about to try and help reduce the issues of trafficking. We know that when people are vulnerable, they're more prone to exploitation and traffickers prey on that because they have vulnerabilities. You know, uh, uh, primarily the four million that you mentioned are, are women and children who have been dispersed all over Europe, initially through to Poland, Romania, Hungary, um, Moldova, but actually now are, are moving to more capitals across Europe. And as people disperse, they become more vulnerable to sexual exploitation, uh, people tricking them and, and, and finding ways for them to get involved. I think the thing I would advocate always for migrants is that there is an opportunity for a legal and fair way for people to come to a country. Uh, if you look at the issue with the cross-channel deaths that have happened, that directly correlates, the increase in them directly correlates to when the British government stopped the low-skill migrant visa, allowing people to come to the country. If there are major issues in places like Ethiopia, Syria, Afghanistan, you, you know, you, you start to realise that that has an impact upon people wanting to come to this country. So as a direct result of aid changes, um, the budget for Syria this last year moved from £1.2 billion to £200 million. So as a result, the amount of Syrian refugees who will want to migrate to this country will increase. So as a result to that, it puts people into a vulnerable situation. And I, I fully believe that we're called to welcome the strangers. We're called to help to the point that we possibly can. I think this Ukrainian crisis has shown in how the Polish people have, have ad adapted to that, where there's nearly 2 million individual homes have taken uh, Ukrainians to come and live with them, tells me that there's a heart in Poland want to make a difference. And it's that heart that I think needs to be the first thing that we start with to influence politics. Because if we just assume that that people are, are migrants are bad, then we build up an ideology of against them rather than looking at these individuals as vulnerable and how do we protect them. And I believe that there is a part that we can all play in this. And I want to try and support governments across the world as they try to help make a bigger difference. And certainly last week, I was advocating uh, with the French government, speaking with the EU representatives, the Irish government, about ways in which Europe can deal with this crisis even greater than we have done. I was delighted to hear of the cooperation that there is across Europe in condemning the war in Ukraine and actually starting to see straight away that the vulnerabilities exist now for traffickers. And we hear reports of them coming through at this stage of traffickers trying to prey on innocent and vulnerable people. So I would encourage everybody to pray that those individuals would not make those decisions, um, that they wouldn't go get in that car with those individuals trying to traffic them, but actually that we would find a way for them to come into a place of safety and refuge and as I say, for whether it's the British government or any other government across Europe, I just want a safe, uh, ordered and structured route for people to find freedom. 
rather than to find a place where they move from one horror to an absolute other horror. Um, and, and the problem that we've got is this is not going away quickly. And the UN are definite that they don't want to have camps operating because camps end up being there for decades onwards. What they want to try and do is have an approach that could lead to people coming and going back and hopefully through all of the plans that are coming through, the, the opportunities they have to work together collaboratively in this space, it's going to lead to a huge shift in, in how people deal with trafficking going forward. Mm, thank you. Yeah. Wow. Lots to pray about, lots to think into and process there. Um, and uh, yeah, so we were, I want to just encourage people to be praying for you and for the work with Hope for Justice. Um, I'm going to give you a moment uh, just to, in, a, in a few minutes. If you, you know, if you were going to share a word of advice or even a word of caution with a church leader, maybe you want to bring that. But before that, um, I've just got another question that my uh, researchers have uh, discovered, which is I've heard that you collect ginger beer bottles. Uh, which is, I don't think I've ever, is there a, a collective noun for people who uh, who collect ginger beer bottles? <laughs> but uh, yeah, just, you know, why? why? I mean, yeah, that has to just be a why. Yeah, no, I, that's funny that you find that out. That's mad. I don't know who you've been speaking to, but um, yeah, I, I, whenever um, my brother and I, at the bottom of where we used to live, there was a, a stream that ran through and we used to play there all the time. And one day when I was in my teens, I discovered a bottle that had been there for a hundred years and it, it ginger beer itself would have had the bottles themselves are ceramic. Um, they speak of a bygone era. And it just struck me that the person who probably carved up this stream was probably, you know, on a hot summer's day with a spade in his hand or shovel in his hand um, was probably drinking something out of these ginger beer bottles. And there is something about that that isn't a mechanized process, is something that that kind of evokes the quality that was put into things. And I kind of think they're like the old Coke cans that that we currently use and who would collect them. So they're unbeknown to me before that, it is it's a real thing. It, it, people do collect them, and they some of them go for ridiculous money. But you can you can buy them for a, just a few pounds in terms of where they stand. But they they can go for hundreds, if not thousands, of pounds. Oh. Uh, thankfully, I don't I don't partake in the things that are a little bit expensive. But I just like them. I like the look and the feel of them, and I like what they mean and symbolize in terms of these are their individual small family owned businesses that were selling ginger beer um at a, at a time when water couldn't be drunk because it wasn't pasteurized properly it wasn't treated effectively this was this was them protecting their families and they created these and they sprung up in small communities they represented the communities and they put a, a brand on them from that local community so i don't have loads of I've, I've probably got about maybe 40 of them but they're all from all different places and and i love them there you go <laughs> fantastic um so as we're wrapping up tim um if if you know speak to me as a church leader or other people who are listening right now we're all trying to navigate a fast changing ever-changing volatile uncertain future as they described it with many you know it seems intractable problems um what what kind of advice would you give somebody like myself or anybody listening or a word of caution even yeah, I, I think the first thing I would say is don't rush to do something and, and do it wrong. 
don't try and and bring people on a journey that could inoculate them about wanting to help the poor, the weak, and the marginalised. Because if you go and get involved in something and it's poorly run, poorly organised and poorly orchestrated, it'll reflect badly on the church at large and it will potentially stop people from wanting to do anything for years to come. I think it's better to start small and try and do something on a local basis, even if it's just a prayer ministry. We we talk about prayer being one of the most important things, but but to genuinely actually be intentional about what you ask for, get to know the local community. I mean, if it's from the UK, they produce ward area plans and so few church leaders look even at the council ward area plans to talk about what are the issues, essential issues as to where they are. So you get to know the space a bit like Nehemiah, you go and you, you walk around the walls and you see what the issues are and how they need to be addressed and then come up with a thought through professional plan for your church. It, it may intersect with Hope for Justice. If it is, anyone can drop me a message and connect in. But it, it as it stands, I, I believe, and going back to Joseph's life, the blessing is never in the vision. In fact, the vision is, is a bit of a curse because that's the thing that got him sold into slavery. That's the thing that got him um, put in prison. You know, it, it, it isn't something that you desire. It actually gets hold of you. And the thing that everybody needs to see is a thought through plan that can be executed well because that's where the blessing is. So I encourage church leaders all over the world in whatever capacity that you're doing, whether it's modern slavery, human trafficking, or whether it's another area, helping helping the poor, the weak and the marginalized, have it thought through and think generationally. Don't do something that's just a drop in the ocean that you know almost is schizophrenic for your people, but something that can be thought through based on what you're hearing from God on your local community and something that we can be a play a part on. I would start with issues around training and education. I would try and have people be more aware of what's going on so that when their heads on swivel and they can see what's happening in the local community, I would encourage you not to go rushing in and trying to break down doors on brothels because you need to work collaboratively with the local authorities and bringing them in on the journey to ask what you can do to try and help support them in the community will also help build bridges of trust. I think the church itself has so far tried to to, to almost alienate themselves from society instead of being an essential part of society. So I encourage you as you step forward, as you start to do something, start small. If you need help, advice, support, we've got lots of stuff available online. Love Mm -hmm. to help anyone who needs advice and support. But on this specific issue, I, I think if you start to talk about what the issue is and how relevant this is to God's heart for humanity and what we need to do as a church to stand up, we can, we can as a church movement, change society so that we move away from what are the underpinnings of human trafficking and modern day slavery. Amen. Fantastic. I think I mean, you might have used the word relevant there. And I often think that these are issues around you know, church relevance for a long time was thought of as being church relevant meant you had to have skinny jeans and a smoke machine and you were trying to do anything in a particular way and then that was being relevant. But actually relevant, literally for me, means meeting needs. And, you know, if you're not relevant to your community, I suppose, you know, I've often said that there's, um, you know, if your church did not exist, who would weep? And if, they are, if it's only the people who presently go to it, then there's no wonder when churches are closing left, right and centre. And the only people who uh, who are upset about it are the dwindling numbers of people who used to go. 
um, then that's because they're not relevant. I mean, around where we are, just down the road, the local swimming baths was going to close down and the and the, there was a Ferrari about it. And the uh, the people all around it were like, you know, you must not close this building, this Victorian building. But it wasn't because it was a Victorian building. It was because it was relevant to their needs. Whereas just down the road, a beautiful church building closed and nobody complained or or bothered. So I suppose in many ways, these kind of things, if we can, as you say, do them well and do them right, we're showing that actually the church of Jesus Christ um, is is relevant you know we still and you know not just for singing songs on sunday but for you know the people who are going to make a difference for yeah I, I i fully believe that and I, I i think there are people who wouldn't darken the door of a church to hear on a sunday morning but would come to an event that's about helping the weak the poor and marginalized in the community i mm. i i think it, it it evokes something of a a kind of heart that we all have to want to help mm. um and at its very core we we don't want to see people in distress mm. so if if there's a way in which that is a bridge mm. i think we've got to build more bridges into communities rather than walls i think it, you know bridges themselves open up opportunities to for people to travel to places that they wouldn't normally be able to get to and i think if if the church can do that then suddenly we're building so many on ramps for people to understand how the church can help them in their, their community because you're going to build a relationship with someone who you know and you know you're going to have to go to an event or you're going to have to be introduced by someone you know to feel comfortable to attend yeah wonderful i'm gonna i don't usually do this but i think in terms of the some of the things that you've said and just to sort of the challenge um that there is for us in them i just wanted to uh to to pause and pray because obviously these are huge issues and they're not tangential if you like to the to the church and I think often they've become that whereas they should be very much front and center if we're following following Jesus and you know and his agenda even his manifesto um which he says and I'll, I'll read this and then we'll pray the spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. And Lord, uh, thank you that you announced that as your manifesto and you want us to be part of it and to be fully invested in that. And that's what you're, what the spirit of the Lord is on is on in Lord. Thank you. Your spirit is moving to be good news for the poor. And if your church isn't, we're not reflecting you. Thank you for the work of hope for justice to proclaim freedom for the prisoners. And uh, Lord, thank you that through even listening to this uh, people, well, I, I'm, I'm learning stuff. I'm having my eyes opened to the plight of the oppressed so that they can be set free. And um, we thank you, Lord, that, above it all you are at work in all these situations and we just pray that you continue to guide tim and everybody else who's involved with this and and us as churches and church leaders to see where are you working and where do you want us to get involved so that um more and more of of, of your people can go free thank you lord that like in exodus um, you heard the cry of the the plight of the oppressed and and you said i'm going to move i'm going to get involved i'm going to come down and i'm going to set people free let my people go so they can worship me so lord uh, please use us and help us uh, frail and uh, powerless as we often feel 
to be your hands, your voice, to pray, to petition, to partner, to do whatever we can, Lord, um, uh, just to, as, as Tim said, come together and work for you in these issues, Lord, that we know break your heart. Um, and Lord, thank you that you are the God of freedom. Uh, thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Okay, Tim Nelson, it's been fantastic to have you on the Future Church podcast. Thank you very much for your time and uh, for encouraging us so much. It's been amazing. Thanks so much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Future Church podcast. If you enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, listen back with your team and share it. Further thoughts and resources can be found at anthonydelaney.com.